Let's uh, pray and then get down to business. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us poor sinners. Amen. Amen. So this is it. I promise. I promise this is it. Uh, so that means you've got to get your licks in now. If you have anything you want to say about Song of Songs, you've got to say it now or forever hold your peace. Um, so we're going to talk about chapter 8 today. And actually, I, so I was a little bit torn about what to do. So I have a video I want to show you. Maybe I've shown you before. Maybe not, actually. Um, there's a series of videos presently being produced all the time. It's really phenomenal stuff. Animated videos, high quality, super high quality animated videos. I show them to the high schoolers, especially the ones that they give a synopsis of a book of, a, of the Bible. Um, very clear, give you the big picture, help you put everything in perspective. I think maybe we'll watch it first, the one for Song of Songs. Um, it's about six minutes long. gives you the overview and you can sort of think about the things we've talked about and see where they fit, maybe where they don't fit with what they say in the video. Because there's always interpretation going on. It's not just, you know, here's what it says, but there's, there's some interpretation too. Um, so we'll do that first. And we'll look at chapter 8. Uh, anything else we need to talk about beforehand? Come to the women's retreat. Even if you haven't signed up, go ahead and come. 5.30 tonight, supper begins at 5.30, I think, and then the speaker may be around 7. And then Saturday, tomorrow morning, breakfast at 7.30, 7.30 to 8.30, and maybe the speaker at 9 or so. But it's pretty, pretty loose schedule, so come have some fun. Okay, here we go. Let's give this a try. I fixed this with the sound, so this is going to be great. We're finally there. You ready? The last day. Okay, what do you think? It's not, I don't think that there's too much new that he said, but um, maybe it helps bring some things together a little bit. you have any observations, Barb? I like that at the beginning. I know. Uh, but then it would have spoiled the whole, <laughs> the whole journey, right? <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Um, so, one of the, so here's actually one of the reasons why I didn't want to do it at the beginning is because he actually, so he says some things that are a bit more concrete than, than they actually are in, in reality, right? So, for instance, the, over, the overarching structure, it's, you know, it's a little bit more ambiguous than that. And so there's, there's some merit in sort of sorting through it on our own and being confused by it and then, right? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but I, yes, um, I think probably next time I would, I would show it at the beginning. Who, uh, any other questions, any other thoughts? Yeah. I thought it, well, it it's very clear. Yeah, it is very clear. Yeah. What about that bit at the end, um, the three ways that the song has been interpreted? So Israel sees it, people of Israel saw it as an allegory of their relationship, God's relationship to them. The church, in view of Ephesians 5, the, um, the love of a husband and wife is a picture of Christ's love for the church. The church comes along and interprets it then as God's relationship to, or Jesus' relationship to the church. And then this note about ancient archaeological finds that show this kind of poetry is, um, is all around in the, in the cultural milieu, right? So, um, so how do you think, what do you think about that? Would, how do you feel now at this point about the presence of Song of Songs in the Bible? I know you were a bit uncomfortable about it at first. How do you feel about it now? I feel a lot more relaxed about it. Good. Mission accomplished. <laughs> That's great. The third way that it's, it's, it's a gift from God, so, you know, it 
I like that interpretation of it, I guess, because it's a gift from God, and if we remember it's a gift from God, right. our lives will be a whole lot better. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and so I, I... He talks about his other gifts in the Bible, so... Yeah, and, and love not, is, is not, certainly not the least of them, right? Yeah. In fact, probably the greatest, right? Holly. Um, yeah, the, like the archaeological finds, you know, that you were talking about, uh, or that was mentioned, it was like a part of their regular everyday, so to speak, about this holy love, which I feel like we don't, it's so taboo now because of all that right. has happened to love, or people think is love. And so it's kind of refreshing to think that people lived in a way where they were loving each other in holiness. Right. Not in misery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can go back to that. Yeah, well, and maybe. But I, so I think that one of the things that is helpfully pointed out, I should have grabbed a hand up myself. Turn there, flip your hand out over. Um, let's see. Just take a look at the very last paragraph. We'll look at these quotations, I think, if we have some time, at a little bit more length. But just look at the very last paragraph, way down at the bottom, that begins with, the question then arises. Right? Uh, so, so I think you'll, un- you'll understand why this question arises. The question arises, how does love occur outside Israel's and the church's union with the Lord? Right? So we know how love can go wrong, how difficult it is. We see it all the time presently. I mean, the, the current state of things... With, in terms of love, I saw somebody remark that the, the, the supposedly progressive reaction um, towards uh, all, you know, all of the trauma that, that has happened lately uh, in the abuse of women, the abuse of young girls, right? All of the, the progressive reaction is actually re-embracing what are, what are basically Christian and puritanical mores, right? So we say um, they, they took down a painting, John, John Waterhouse's painting. John, I showed you a John Waterhouse painting of the Annunciation a few weeks ago, a number of, maybe it was in the, maybe it was in the winter. Um, it was this really sort of fl- flowing, um, sur- kind of surreal, he's a pre-Raphaelite painter, picture of Mary and the angel. Well, he, also, he also painted a lot of, say, Greek mythology um, in which there's a lot of nudity, and especially nudity of young women. Okay, so, he, so in a gallery in London, I think it was London, somewhere in England, um, they took down one of his paintings. Um, and they said, we're doing this to prompt conversation about it. Um, but of course, the reactions are, go, go all over the place. Here, this is censorship, right? And it's, it, it, we're, you know, um, we're reverting to puritanical values. And on the other hand, you know, there's this really, really sort of um, strong uh, indictments of the character of artists in history. I mean, they haven't always been, um, you know, sanctified people, right? I mean, uh, the, the subject material that a lot of artists choose is because of sort of their own perversions. Um, so, but it's interesting how we have come through a time much of the 20th century, right, or at least the second half of the 20th century, where um, everything was ha- as you will, ha- have it as you'd like it, um, and now we're, we're entering a different mode. But the question that remains, so we struggle with this. Humanity struggles with this, and we see it in these ebbs and flows and, and this, this difficult matter of figuring out how to love appropriately, and we can't get it. We actually can't figure it out. Um, 
And so Robert Jensen raises the question, well, naturally then, how, can this, how is this even possible outside of Israel, outside of the church, and outside of our understanding of our relationship to God? And he says, well, it manifestly does happen, right? So in spite of all of the broken love that's out there, we do know instances where it does work, right? Where it, where it is holy, where it is good. Um, and not because it's, it, not because it necessarily happens in the church, but just because it's a gift from God. It's a blessing. God blesses relationships. So he says, as elsewhere in this commentary, we can only say, wherever by God's providence love happens, the love between the Father and the Son and the Son's love of sinners are its condition of possibility. So when it happens in the world, it happens only because of Jesus and his love for the church. The synagogue and the church have the great advantage that they know this. Right? The world doesn't know that when love works, this is why it works. Um, but, so we have this great advantage, and then we can live by it. Which I think is, um, sort of helps shape the way you think about how the Song of Songs got into the, into the Bible. Why you know, love poetry that could fit in a secular context um, gets co-opted by Israel, gets co-opted by the church. It's because the church and Israel say, here's this beautiful thing, and we actually know... We, have, we know why it works that way. We know why, why it's actually functioning, why it's good. Um, everybody else is just sort of like, well, isn't this interesting, you know, that people can love each other and uh, they, de- they delight in each other and they desire each other and they want to give themselves to another. Isn't that an interesting thing? The rest of the world, they have to stop at observing that interesting fact. The church gets to say, here's why it works that way and here's why it's not just um, incidental to our lives, but why it's a, why it's a peculiar good that God has given to us, a special blessing that he's given to us. Okay. Any, any other observations about uh, that video? Yeah, Krista. Uh, just because I think it's, uh, if, we, if we studied this, it's so wonderful that God created love. Yeah. You know, just what would happen without love. You know, and uh, we see it when I read something from the uh, persecuted Christians, you know, uh, <clears throat> there's a word uh, that's uh, so egoistic from from the um, uh, regime also that they said uh, no. These these um, uh, <clears throat> fear of the Christians, it sometimes don't, uh, you can't understand it. Mm-hmm. Why is the fear? But I think in the in the end that's the love. Mm-hmm. What they uh, what they really uh, portray in loving one another. Yeah, well, that gets to the notion that love is dangerous, right? So, love is love is a good thing, but it also makes claims on you. It makes it so if you see if somebody sees love in action, you, if you see that, you cannot help but say, "I ought to be like that," right? This is, this is a reflection of who I should be. And that's hard. That's hard if you don't want it. It's hard if you don't like what that, what that expects of you. I mean, this is the function of God's law, right? This is why love um, can be a dangerous thing for us. And this is why, like, even Jesus on the cross, who for us is the purest gospel, can, because of his self-giving love, his fully giving himself, it can also be a crushing, a crushing word of law to somebody who doesn't want to be, doesn't want to need that, doesn't want to die with Jesus, right? 
So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and this is important. It's important to note also that love is not just a gift that God decides would be good for us, but it's integral to his nature, right? So from eternity, God the Father was loving the Son, right? If, if that, so, when, so when he creates us in his image, it's only with love as integral to our nature. Okay. So those that reject that type of love, that's, they just reject it. That's right. It's, it's there, but... Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, at, at, at a surface glance, you can say, well, that's ridiculous. You, can, you know how good love is, right? How good it is for you. Um, but you also know how hard it is, right? And, I mean, and, and people understand that, too, right? So you could say, this is, um, be, uh, receiving God's love is hard in the same way that receiving your spouse's love or your friend's love or your parents' love is hard, right? It's hard to receive the love of your parents when it means they make you eat your vegetables or clean your room, right? It's hard to receive their love. Um, that's why that's why the life of a Christian is is spent growing and maturing in love. I mean, you when you get older, you realize just how much your parents loved you, right? And how good how good it was for you. So, was there was yeah, Carol? Going back to um, the video and. Um, comments whether you should see at the beginning or the end. Yeah. I tend to go to the end. Okay. Because um, when you're learning something, if somebody is going to teach you how to do, do something, let's say on the computer. Okay. You learn it, retain it, and understand it. If you have to do it yourself, I will watch someone else do it. And you're always going back. Well, yeah, right, right. Part of this, we've had to struggle with what this is doing in here, this stuff, well, whatever. Mm-hmm. You struggle with it, and there's learning with it. Yeah. Which you remember. So, so, okay, perfect. So we'll leave it as an open question for next time. Next time we do Song of Songs, which, which might be, I mean... Well, how long can, how long will you remember that we've done this? Probably for probably got maybe a good fifteen years before we can do it again, huh? We'll do it next week. How's that sound? Okay. <laughs> was there was there a question over here? I, no. Um, I was just going to say that you know all three interpretations. I think we touched on all of them. You know, yeah. We talked about all of them. Um, you know God's God's covenant with the Israelites, and then um, Jesus' love for the church and the poetry aspect of it. So. Yeah, I, that, and that's why I, I really appreciate that he comes around to say it's poetry, but it's not just poetry, right? And this is true. This, this should help you, I think, as you read Scripture generally, to know that um, there is more going on than meets the eye. There is going on what meets the eye. Okay, so a lot of, a lot of people interpret Scripture and say, what meets the eye is unimportant altogether, right? The historical details, the, the, uh, you know, the actual events in the Gospels don't matter so much as the big theological picture. That's nonsense. The actual historical events matter so much, right? And without actual historical events, without actual people like Abraham and Adam and Eve, without Moses, without actual people, all of this is just make-believe, right? So the historical reality, the, the overt sense is crucial, 
But the authors of the Bible were gifted and inspired, and so they have more to teach us than we can we can possibly consume. I mean, it's just, um, it's just, and this, this is where having teachers in the church, so reading, say, Robert Jensen, to, who's a commentator who um, has studied the commentaries, the history of interpretation of this in the church, you find things, you learn, uh, you learn uh, how to look at it in a way that helps you plumb the depths of it. Um, so, so do that as you read the rest of Scripture, too. Make sure you understand the overt meaning. Make sure you understand what's going on, but then also ask yourself, why did this writer say it in this way and put it here? That's, really, that's an important question to ask. Um, we're going to do the Gospel of Mark next, and that question will be very important as we read Mark. A lot of people think that Mark is just sort of gathering together little fragments of Jesus' tradition, and he's like, he's making a scrapbook or something like that. No, he's, he's writing a carefully crafted drama. Um, it's, it's, I won't spoil it for you. But watch the video at the end. Um, it's great. So, but, but think that way, okay? Um, Where are those videos? Thebibleproject.com. I love them. That's just, it's really done in a remarkable way. Yeah. We, the Bible Project. So with the... Uh, um, yeah, with the high schoolers, I mean, we watch, we watch a video every week. Sometimes we watch the same video several weeks in a row because, because there's so much content in there, but it all fits together so nicely. To have, like, take your favorite book of the Bible and have that printed when it's done. They've got a poster that you can buy. <laughs> it's super, super cool. I, so my only problem is the posters aren't quite big enough. They're, like, maybe 11 by 17, maybe 24 inches wide. I want one that's, like, as big as the wall. That's what I yeah. so. If you can figure out how to make that happen. We could have them, well, I thought about doing it on the, in the walls of the high school classroom. That would be, that'd be fun. Because um, then, then you can, like, get up and move to the spot when you're studying it. Like, that would be, it's, anyway. Down the road. Someday. Yeah, that's what, that's what we got to do. Okay. Um, let's look at Song of Songs, Chapter 8. This is, this is, now, uh, not in terms of the drama of Song of Songs, this isn't really the climax, but in terms of the theological content, the, 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 well, the best well-known, most well-known passage, of course, is 6 and 7, right? Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, and jealousy is fierce as the grave. But let's take a look um, at it just bit by bit and see what we get out of it, okay? Let me just read a bit for you. Verses 1 through 4. Oh, that you were like a brother to me, she says, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay. I'm sorry? Until it pleases. Until it pleases. Until it so desires. Yeah, right. Okay, what do you think? I'll tell you what I think. It's a little weird, right? I wish you were my brother. Yeah. So. He doesn't want her to be a brother like 
brother. Good. Okay. It says like. Let's see. Yep. It's like a brother. That's right. And you grow up together. Yeah. You could talk to each other. Talk to each other. Protect each other. There's no. Oh, did you see them? I mean, they're brother and sister. That's exactly right. So you nail a couple of really important points there. First, in the first place, she she wishes she had known him more longer than she had known him. Right from. Right, who, like a brother who had nursed at my mother's breast, so that I'd known you from even that, mo- that time, right? Um, but then also, notice she says, if I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me, right? No one would scoff at my affection for you. Um, it, I, wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to hide it at all. Yeah, a brother and sister could walk hand in hand or arm in arm. That's right. A married couple could die. That's right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, very good. Um, so, so, I mean, what's, what at first glance strikes you as a, like a, stra- a strange notion um, makes, makes complete sense. I don't know why. So I, give you, I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate. So she's, you know, wants to be nurturing even, right, of her brother, of her lover. Um, but then you hear this refrain, verses 3 and 4. We've heard this before. We've heard this before. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Now, one of the things that happens in chapter 8 here is we, it seems like we got little chunks that aren't connected to one another. So, who knows what's going on there, okay? Um, but, what do you notice about it? What do, what, anything? Do you notice anything about that? Anything strike you as interesting? Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? How about this? If you were going to allegorize that, how would you do it? If you were going to say this is about Israel and God, how would you do it? Or Christ in the church? Okay, I was going to say, I hear the word wilderness and think about Jesus in the desert for 40 days. Okay. And he's, you know, leaning on his beloved, as in the, what he's going towards, you know, bringing the church to himself, is his beloved, and, and because of that, that gives him strength to go through the wilderness. Okay. Leaning on his beloved the church. Um, okay. I think of Israel wandering. Okay. Israel. So then fill it out. How, do, how does the rest of it go? How does the rest of the allegory work then? Well, Leaning on her beloved. Yeah. So God brings them. I mean, God is bringing them through the wilderness. Pillar of fire by day. Yeah. Right. Right, so this by day, fire by night, you know, leading them through, and and Israel is utterly dependent on God for everything. Yeah, their food, their safety, their yes. So this, so then in that in that case, leaning um, becomes becomes uh, an image for having God as your God. Okay, so think think of how you know how Luther talks about the first commandment in the large catechism. This is a I think we mention it every now and again. He says, what is a God? What is a God? It is whoever you expect, it is that, whoever you expect good things from, okay? Whoever you lean on, that's your God. Um, And, you know, so, so in that sense, the image of Israel coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on God, having God as her God, on the one hand, you know that, it's going to go sour, right? So she doesn't, so already, I mean, the, 
the way the story goes, you come out of Israel, you're coming out of Egypt, you're at Sinai, and then immediately afterwards you're leaning on another arm, right, coming out of the wilderness. Look, Israel, this, these are the gods who brought you up. This is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, just think about how atrocious that is in terms of this image. Um, but here, here at least, the picture is of trust and dependence and faith. Carol. Thinking of John the Baptist, but I don't know how to get the meaning. Hmm. Okay. It's a little. I see. John the Baptist. No. No. No, I can't. I tried to draw a picture. I think you were probably there for the kids at Pastor Chats, and you know what they did? They laughed. They all laughed. So, no. Um, I'm just thinking, coming out of the wilderness. Yeah. Um, hmm. Think about it some more. All right? Let's, let's move on so we can get to verses 6 and 7. Okay, under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. I don't know. Um, Got the apple tree. Under the apple tree, I roused you. There your mother conceived. Right. There she was in labor and gave you birth. Right. Which is, right, which is a little bit, I mean, so that raises some more questions, yeah. right? Um, and it's ambiguous. It's unclear whether uh, she was just in labor or whether she conceived him there. Um, but maybe it connects you back to the notion of wanting to be with him from his birth, right? Here, you could take, you could take it all the way back. I wish I had, I had known your origin, even, right? And you know, this, this, in the, the, the things in the Bible says that in the ancient world, sexual union and birth were often associated with fruit trees. Mm. I do. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. You have, I mean, so you have uh, fertility um, is connected to the natural seasons of the, of the world, right? And it, broadly speaking. And so, yeah. Yeah. Didn't we have an anchor tree? We had an apple tree earlier. Where was that? Do you remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. That was way back at the beginning then, wasn't it? Um, verse 3 of chapter 2. As an apple tree among the f- trees of the forest. So if you take the notion of childbearing, fer- he's fertile, right? He's ready, to, he's ready to, give, to have offspring. So is my beloved among the young men. Um, that's right. So, I mean, so it kind of dispels the notion that these are just sort of disparate, that they, don't, that they aren't connected. This is, all, this is all tying together. Go ahead, Barb. I do have a note from another uh, time when we've gone through this book that says that these verses, um, verse 5, that's love renewed in Lebanon. Love renewed in Lebanon. The more I get down there. Huh. In Lebanon? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That this is a relative speaking. Relative. Oh, so it's not. It's neither she nor he. Okay. Okay. Says friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll just leave. Let's just leave it there. All right. The fun part. Okay. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. 
So to look at this, I want to think about it in this way. Um, there's a lot of parallelism going on here. Okay, so parallelism is a, you know, is a poetic device, and the Hebrews are, they do it pretty intensely. So take a look at it like this. We got love, strong, death. Okay, and then we've got jealousy, fierce. Grave. So, death and the grave are obviously parallel. Strong and fierce are obviously parallel. Love and jealousy, you know, what do you think about that? You think it's love gone bad, okay. Okay, what would you say? Okay. I think there's a right thing for a husband to be like, you know, you just touched my wife, like, get away from me. Yeah. You know, that's a. Yeah, or protective, right? So take a look in Exodus, open up to Exodus chapter 34. This gives us a clue as to what's going on here. I think, so it's an open question, just, just in terms of the poetic structure. It is often, it, it, the parallelism can either highlight an identity. So you, it could be all three things, all three pairs are supposed to be identical, but also parallelism is often used to highlight a difference. So two things are the same and one thing is different. So at, at least in terms of the poetic structure, it's a little bit unclear, but I think that um, you'll see some, some, uh, some support for Aaron's thoughts here in Exodus 34. Take a look. Moses has, has um, brought down new tablets, made new tablets, and note, okay, so there's a couple things we've got to say. Take a look at verse 6. 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. That's a really important passage for understanding how God identifies himself. What's the chief identification that God gives for himself? How does he, who, who is he? Yeah, he, he's the one who acts in steadfast love and kindness. Okay, now scoot down to, well, not the, just to follow up again, this is all such good stuff. Verse 8, keep reading with me. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped, and he said, if now... I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. Remember, what we need is a faithful Israelite to intercede on behalf of God's unfaithful people. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance, which God then does. Okay, so Moses, you see Moses and you think, this is pointing ahead to Jesus. You see Jesus and you think, you think, this is the completion of what Moses began to do, okay? And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. 
Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall So here he's warning them against taking another lover. You shall tear down the altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. We, don't, we should use this. We don't, so when we pray our prayers of the church, we always, give, we always name God, right? So, Lord Jesus Christ, the great physician, please do this. We should, do, we should use jealous as one of the names. I don't know why we don't. It's a great name, right? Because he will, not ha- he will not suffer for you to worship at another altar. He will not suffer you to cast glances at another lover. It's, uh, he's, his love is singular, and that's what he wants from you, too, Okay? So I think it is a proper jealousy, but, but notice it is dangerous, right? Because what's the result um, if, if he's jealous? Lest you make a covenant, let's see if he says it here. Lest you make a covenant. Um, well, he just says what will happen. You will, you're going to go, you're going to go astray. Um, but in other places we hear what happens if you, if his jealousy breaks out against you. Okay. Um, Okay, good. So now think about it this think any questions? Okay, so love is strong as death, jealousy fierce as the grave. Think about what that means. Start with just love is strong as death. What does that image mean? I mean it at, it just sort of as it washes over us it makes sense. Like here's this hyperbole. Love is so strong, okay? But be more specific. Think about it more specifically. Sort it out. What does it mean? How is death strong? You can't get away. What's that? It's final. It's final. That's something that's going to happen to everybody. Inevitable. Okay. Do you, so now think about those things in terms of love. Is that, what, is that what's going on here? Love is something that you can't get away from, that's final, that's inevitable. Does that make sense? Are you talking about God's love? Uh, no. I mean, well, so love is God, uh, maybe, I mean, in, in, some, in some general sense, but just love in, in general, right? Out of your control. Out of your control. That, so that's... Um, that's a, a good observation. I like that because it tells us that love is not, just like death, it's not a matter of my will, right? I don't get to choose. So is love. Love is strong as death. You can't get away from it, um, meaning that when, when it takes hold of you, there's no escape. Um, you're captured. Which is, uh, which is really... Speaking of... I think I think it's got to be both, right? Because love is going to be mutual, right? If it's unrequited, or if it's not, you know, if if one person doesn't isn't really in it, then of course it's going to be one-sided, which is where, you know, the image becomes really difficult. So, so here's, the, here's another question, another way to frame it. Is love really 
as strong as death. In God's eyes, it's strong. in God's eyes, God sent his son to die for us. That's how strong his love was for us. And he is still jealous that he wants us in his kingdom. That's right. Bingo. Yeah, right. So now, now think about this. Do you remember, do you remember weeks and weeks and weeks ago um, we talked a bit about erotic faith? Do you remember that term? I gave you that, I gave you that strange term, which is this um, really prevalent notion that love can overcome everything, right? Uh, think Mon- Lin-Manuel Miranda's Tony acceptance speech. Love is love is love is love is love, and it'll undo all of the problems in the world. And we know, we know that that's, it's just not true, right? <laughs> Love, love won't overcome death, but we assert this um, in some sort of hope, in some, some sort of, um, in, or maybe it's even an instinct that it's got to be true at some level. But it's only true, it's only true in view of God's love, right? It's only true in view of God's redemption, which is, so think about this, think about the poetry coming into the Bible, right? However, however it happened to be in the Bible, Think about what that means. So the world has love poetry, which says love is strong as death. I mean, you see this all over the place, right? This is, this is the kind of stuff that love poetry says. But now you bring it into the Bible and you say, now it makes sense. Now it's, now it's actually true, right? Now we've got a reason for this, for, to, to say not only is love as strong as death, and this isn't, this isn't just exaggeration, this isn't just poetic license, but in fact it is stronger than death. Um, which is pretty spectacular. This, this, this is really um, uh, potent language. It, it, it become, I, I, my sense is that it becomes so sort of commonplace for us to think about love in this way, in this world, as romantic as the world is, and not to realize that love runs into this obstacle and we get to push through that obstacle because of Jesus. We actually get to see the fulfillment of the world's poetic aspirations. Which is pretty, which is pretty uh, spectacular. Uh, okay, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Do you have any, any, does that strike you any differently? Is anything new or different being said than love is strong as death? Or is it just repeating the same thing? Okay. I don't know. I like the love is strong as death. I, I get you know, dichotomy. But um, I, was, I was like the grave fierce. Yeah. Is it holding tight? Or, you know, how does that relate to jealousy? Uh, yeah, no, jealousy can be fierce. But right, right. Do you have, does it say grave? I mean, does it say fierce in your Bible right there? Jody? Verse, where are we at? Six. In sorry, Song of Songs eight. I'm sorry. Uh, yep. Anybody have a, anybody have a word different than fierce in that verse? It was just one. I'm curious whether I should have looked this up and whether there's unyielding. Okay, so unyielding that makes a little bit more sense. So I have this vivid memory of a. I did a funeral last January for Faith Beachy, um, which was sort of formative for me because. Um, we go to the cemetery for the graveside service, 
And there's all these things that just are sort of dissonant, things that don't make sense. So um, there's this ugly green carpeting. Um, it's, uh, it's a brighter green, like grass. AstroTurf, right? Uh, <laughs> sorry, carpeting. Uh, around the grave. Um, and stuck in the bottom of the grave is a pump because it's been raining, right? And so the hose is coming up. It's tucked underneath the carpet, uh, underneath the AstroTurf, and is spilling up from the curb over there. You can see it. You can hear it. It's not, it's not hidden. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some flowers, but all of these efforts to mask the unyielding character of the grave, like all you got to do is step up to the grave and look in the hole, and then you see there's no coming, there's no coming out of there, right? You go down, and you're in, and that's it, right? This is, so one, one way to help understand why this language is so strong is the grave, of course, is the technical term that you hear often in scripture, Sheol, right? So it's not, so it's not just the hole in the ground, but it is the unyielding place of the dead, right? Um, think about also this. So um, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, there are lots of deities, of course. Um, the grave, I don't think, I don't think Sheol is personified, but death Moat is personified. So, so death is actually a deity, a god. And um, there's an old... So in, among the mythical traditions of these ancient Near Eastern cultures, you have a, a famous battle between Baal and Moat. Okay? I don't know how it ends up. I think Baal defeats Moat in some way or another. But uh, let me just read for you. This, this is in the, in the mind, in the background of... Our, of our biblical authors, that the, we have these deities who are strong and need to be defeated. Let's see here. Isaiah chapter 28, um, God is coming along and he says, I will, um, I will, I will, I will uh, offer judgment in Jerusalem. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people, because you have said, so here's one way to defeat death and the grave. You have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement, okay? So, so what's going on is the people of Israel are trying to negotiate their way out of the trouble that they find themselves in, the trouble in facing, the de- in facing death and the grave, in facing Mot and Sheol, and they've made an agreement. They've made a covenant with death, a, a deal with the devil, right? Um, they've sold their souls, and God says, I'm going to take care of Mot and Sheol. And in fact, look a little bit further. The next, the next line, it's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Flame, that word flame is a, um, a word that looks something like this, depending on the language you're in. Resep, which is um, the Canaanite, I think it's Canaanite god of pestilence, flame, pestilence. So the things that plague you, right? So we've got this lineup of deities or of enemies, moat, false deities, right? Moat, Sheol, Resep, what's the next one? Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. So you have this notion of, of, of uh, primordial chaos, right? You have a flood again. You've got chaos. And then also, look at the end of it, verse 7. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, all the wealth of his house, what does that make you think of in terms of gods or deities, people you might worship? God, or what you might have as your God. In the New Testament, we use the word mammon, 
right? You cannot serve both God and mammon. Can you see what I'm writing? Okay, all right. I thought maybe I was just writing it for me. Um, okay, so you've got this lineup, Mot, Sheol, Resup. You've got Chaos and Mammon. And what, is, what are we saying here? Love, love defeats all of them, right? Um, what the ancient peoples thought of as deities, principalities, and powers that they needed to struggle against on their own and maybe even make an agreement with, God is here to defeat. What we, what we face even now, right? Death as the end of love, the grave as you know, the end of our lives, as the, as the end of our bodies, pestilence, things that we cannot control in this world and the chaos into which the world entropy you know, seems to be returning, um, and mammon, which you know, is probably, the, probably uh, the least of all of these, and yet we treat it as the greatest, right? Um, God has come in his love to defeat all of them. Okay, now I, ju- uh, I was just talking and talking and talking and not thinking about where we're going. You make, does this make sense? Krista. I just was thinking, you know, other religions have this kind of fear. Um, and uh, uh, I think, therefore, I, uh, the Christian, uh, that's a wonder, the most wonderful religion. Yeah, right. That's right, and, 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 here, and here's why. Precisely, it is the most wonderful if you look at it for what it is because, of course, every religion makes an attempt to save you from these enemies, death and the grave and pestilence and chaos and um, distractions in this world. Every religion makes an attempt to do that in, in a variety of different ways. Some say, as, as the postmoderns do, look, let's just, we just got to embrace it. Okay, or some say let's make an agreement, right? Like the Israelites did. Christianity says they can be defeated; they have been defeated, and not just um, not just like uh, nominally. It's not just uh, it's not just a thought because it's not just a fantasy because what we have is proof on the altar, Jesus' flesh and blood, of a living and risen Jesus who has defeated death. So. This is, the, this is the stark thing about Christianity that the rest of the world doesn't quite understand is that you have to face the reality. You can't, you can't uh, ignore or look past the reality of our enemies. Otherwise, you don't need a crucified and risen Savior. But Jesus, not shying away from death and the grave, comes through to life, right? Um, and also, this is also really crucial... We see this in Romans 6. I mean, take earnestly the fact that Paul says, you have been baptized, have been buried with Christ, right? So it is not that, um, it is not that you are spared death, but you are brought from death to life. Life and love overcome death. Um, which is uh, the only honest way to talk about how, we, how, you can, how you can get through it, right? Everything else is a lie. And you take out the fear. That's right. It takes out the fear. Absolutely. And it also takes out the fear of, of love in this world. This is a really important point, too. So it's easy for Christians to have this purely eschatological view of things and say, look, someday it's all going to be better. It's all going to be different. Yes, that's true. But because of what Jesus has done, it is actually better now. 
because of what Jesus has done, because of the love of the Father for the Son and the obedience of the Son for the Father, when we look around and we see love in this world, we're seeing the real thing, not just some facade. We're actually seeing the real thing. When we love one another, it's, it's Jesus' love that has overcome death. It's a living love. Um, and that's also very hopeful. It, gives, it, gives you, it tells you why you can go about your day and do the work that Jesus has given you because you're, you're doing something for eternity. I, wanted, I don't want to miss this other point. I skipped over it. At the beginning of verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. So if you know something about, I gave you this quotation from Robert Jensen on the back. Uh, let me just read this to you because he says it better than I could. Um, the, top, the top quotation. The woman's request is to be her lover's seal. In, ancient, in the ancient world and later, a person's seal was the statement and guarantee of his identity. When handwriting was not individual as it has since become, and indeed great rulers could not write, a signature did not prove who had signed the document. But a person's seal could be unique. It was kept close by the person in a purse or under outer garments in our poem on a cord around the neck or bound to an arm. So a seal upon your heart or seal upon your arm, right? Kept close. This is your seal. In medieval Europe, if a messenger had to be sent with an urgent message whose origin might not be believed, the messenger might, if greatly trusted, be given the sender's seal to carry and show. Now, this is, this is interesting. Uh, we do not here have a simile. The woman doesn't want to be like her lover's seal. She wants to be her lover's seal. That is, she asks him to take her as the visible mark and surety of his own identity. She petitions to be indispensable to his being who he is. In other Old Testament language, they are to be one flesh, one identifiable person over against all others. This is a remarkable claim. So she says, I want to be your identity. And God says, okay. So how will you know who God is? Who is God? He is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. That's how you know who God is. He's the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. Right? It's, not, it's not by looking at some image of him that you know, oh, that's, that's what God looks like. It's by knowing what he has done for Israel. That's how you know who he is. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You hear that litany all over the place, right? How will we know who he, who he is? Um, this happens in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. Remember this? Moses is standing before the burning bush, and he's trying to get out of the job. And God says, and he gives all these reasons. I can't talk. I'm not, um, I'm nobody. And then, but who am I? Verse 11, Exodus 3, verse 11, who am I that I should go? God says, I will be with you. Then Moses says, if I come to the people and say to them, verse 13, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God gives him this, this uh, perplexing answer, God's proper name, I am who I am. God said also to Moses, verse 15, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you, right? So he is the one, that God, the God who brought Abraham out of the land of Ur and gave him promises, that, that God, that's the one who's after you. So then, of course, when you get to Exodus 20 and they, they and, um, uh, or Exodus 32 and they come down from the mountain, Moses comes down from the mountain and, and Aaron says, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt, right? That is the, the, the clearest blasphemy, the most shameful blasphemy you can utter, right? To say that, this carven, this graven image is 
your jealous lover, right? Holly. Is, are the Israelites the seal, or is God the seal? Or wait. The Israelites are the seal. Yep. They are, so this is how you know who God is. Israel, right? And, and likewise now, the church, right? How do you know who God is? The church. You look at the church, right? Um, so it's, a, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible claim. So basically what you're saying is, God can't be who God is without you, right? Without you, without his rescue of you, without your faith in him, God isn't who he is. He's something else. If he's not the God who rescued the church, then, then he's, you know, we don't know who he is. Um, and that's why when you want to find out who God is, you point to the deeds that he has done, right? So you point to the cross and you say, if you want to know who God is, you look at the cross, and in the cross you see the rescue of his people. The, um, the, the, you know, the, the imprint of his seal, right? So the kids are in pastor chats. We've had a chance to learn, on my heart, imprint your image, blessed Jesus, King of grace, um, which kind of reverses the, the, the notion of the seal. But um, same thing. We are identified by God. On our hearts, um, we have God's image imprinted. Jesus, crucified for me. Okay. What other, do you have any other questions? We have negative one minutes. Okay, so we're going to start the book of Mark next week which is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to this. One of the reasons why this is timely is because we're in the second year, year B of the lectionary, so we read through the Gospel of Mark in church on Sunday. Um, so we, we're, we're still at Mark chapter 1 as we're reading through the Gospel lessons. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, thank you. This has been good.